Welcome back to another episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. My name is Finn. And I'm Marina. This week, we're talking about arsenic, both the poison as well as the element. Finn's going to get into the difference between arsenic the poison and arsenic the element later. I'm really excited for this episode because I basically grew up on like Agatha Christie and Arsenic and Old Lace the movie, which we'll also talk about later. But arsenic is known as the king of poisons for a reason. It has an insane history and it's actually still around today. It's just not as common. So I think this will be a fun one. Before we get into it, remember, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die and we like researching and talking about it. So please listen to our full disclaimer at the end of the episode. And please don't sue us. We're just two regular people. I'm going to start today with the story of Mary Ann Cotton, who is known as the first recorded serial killer in Britain. I'm sure there were others, but she's the first in history. Mary Ann was born in County Durham, England, on Halloween in 1832. Like most kids back then, she had kind of a shitty childhood. Her dad was a coal miner, and he actually fell like 150 feet to his death in a mine shaft when she was 10 years old. And reportedly, once her father's body was recovered from the bottom of the mine shaft, it was returned to her mother in a sack labeled Property of the South Hedden Coal Company, as in life, so in death, apparently. Her mother married another coal miner the next year. At age 16, Marianne studied to become a nurse in a nearby village for a couple of years before returning to County Durham to become a dressmaker. This is going to be like one of a million different job changes. Marianne married William Mowbray, who was also a coal miner, in 1852. They moved away from County Durham to southwest England and had at least four to five children of whom there is no written record. So they were born and they died with no name or anything. They did register one child who was born four years later in 1856, whose name was Margaret Jane. Marianne and William moved again, this time to northwest England once more, and this is when it starts to get really confusing. There's a lot of children and husbands and lots of stuff. They had one daughter named Isabella two years after Margaret Jane in 1858. Then Margaret Jane died two years after that in 1860 at the age of three or four. Marianne and William had another child the following year in 1861. Horrifyingly, this third recorded daughter was named Margaret Jane after her late sister. Marianne and William would go on to have a fourth recorded child named John Robert William in 1863. It's important to note here at this point that Marianne took out life insurance policies on her husband, William, as well as all three of her living children, which was at this point Isabella, Margaret Jane II, and John Robert William. The following year, 1864, one-year-old John Robert William died of quote-unquote gastric fever. You're going to see a lot of that in here. Shortly thereafter, in 1865, husband William died of another intestinal issue. Marianne got a small insurance payout from both John Robert Williams and her husband William's deaths, two pounds, five shillings, and 35 pounds, respectively. In today's money, that's less than 4,000 pounds, and at the time, it was worth about six months of her husband's income. Now husbandless and down to two living children, Isabella and Margaret Jane too, Marianne moves again to a new place in County Durham and starts a relationship with, but does not marry, Joseph Notris. Then Margaret Jane too dies of typhus, and Marianne is left with one child and one husband. Now Marianne, one, becomes a nurse again. Two, sends her last remaining child, Isabella, away to live with her mother and her stepfather. And three, she moves again within County Durham and marries a patient of hers named George Ward in 1865. Now remember, a lot has happened in only a few months. Husband one, William, died in January 1865. Marianne marries husband two, George, in August of the same year. 
so all of the moving and the death of Margaret Jane too only happened in a few months. Naturally, Marianne took out life insurance on her new husband, George, which she collected the following year, 1866, when George died of intestinal issues and paralysis. Officially, he died of cholera and typhoid, but I have some doubts. Marianne is now husbandless again. Technically, she still has Isabella, but she's living at her grandmother's house. Now, the story of Husband 3 is even crazier. Marianne decides she is no longer a nurse, but is instead a housekeeper for a widower named James Robinson. Now, unfortunately, only a month after Marianne moved in as housekeeper, James's son John died of gastric fever. Not yet married, Marianne gets pregnant with James's baby. Before the baby is born, though, Marianne's mom gets sick. She appears to be on the mend, but takes a sudden turn for the worse and dies of gastric fever nine days after Marianne showed up to tend to her. Marianne's stepfather rapidly gets remarried like a few months later, and her daughter Isabella gets kicked out of that house. So now Marianne is pregnant, unmarried, and has her daughter Isabella with her again. The reunion with Isabella would be short-lived, though, because Isabella and two of James's pre-existing children all got gastric fever and died in quick succession. Marianne collected on the life insurance she had taken out on Isabella years ago for a total of less than six pounds. Finally, in August 1857, nine months and five deaths after she became his housekeeper, Marianne and James got married. Marianne gave birth in November of that year to Margaret Isabella, but she died a few months after. Marianne had a second child with James in 1869, who they named George. Margaret wants to take out a life insurance policy on both James and George, but James is no fool. He finds out that Marianne is in debt, stealing money from him, and he also finds out that she's trying to get his older children to pawn his belongings to give her more money. So James kicks Marianne out of the house and keeps custody of their son, George. They're still technically married, but Marianne is now homeless. Luckily for her and no one else, Marianne runs into a friend named Margaret. Turns out Margaret had been helping her brother, Frederick Cotton, a widower, raise his two children. Sadly, Margaret died of a stomach issue shortly after telling Marianne about this. Marianne, ever willing to console widowers and get pregnant, started up a relationship with Frederick and became pregnant. Either she didn't tell him that she was still technically married or he didn't care, because Marianne became a bigamist when she married Frederick in 1870. Marianne gave birth to their son, Robert, in 1871. She then took out life insurance policies on Frederick, Frederick's two children from his first marriage, and their son, Robert. Marianne then realizes that the guy she didn't marry, Joseph, was living nearby. So Cotton dies of gastric fever. Marianne collects on his life insurance, and she gets together with Joseph for a second time. While still with Joseph, Marianne starts up a relationship with another man for whom she was acting as a nurse, whose name is unclear in history, but who we'll call Richard Quick Manning. Marianne gets pregnant with Richard Quick Manning's child. Now we're in 1872, and one-year-old Robert, her son with the late Frederick Cotton, dies of gastric fever, as does one of Frederick's children from his first marriage. Marianne collects life insurance on both dead children. Now for a quick State of the Union. Marianne currently has two lovers, Joseph and Richard. She's pregnant with Richard's child, and she is still the guardian for Frederick's last remaining child, whose name was Charles. Marianne doesn't have time with Charles. She doesn't want to deal with him. She wants to be rid of him. She tries to pawn him off on a workhouse, but she's turned away by none other than the assistant coroner, who tells her that he's a minor and he needs her to come with him. 
in a shocking turn of events, Charles, the child, died of gastric fever five days later. She mentions it to the coroner that Charles is dead, and the coroner's like, what the fuck, hold on that death certificate. Marianne can't get her insurance payout without the death certificate. After the newspapers caught wind of Marianne's history, the story spread and the doctor who had taken care of Charles tested him for arsenic. Turns out he'd had a lethal dose and Marianne was arrested and sent to jail, where she would have her 13th child, a daughter named Margaret Edith Quickmanning Cotton. She was later found guilty at trial and hanged to death in 1873. A contemporary journalist described her hanging as, quote, Miss Cotton, who scowled fiercely and with an air of defiance at the crowd, and who muttered constantly but indistinctly, took her place upon the drop with remarkable composure. The wretched woman was launched into eternity, end quote. The rope was too short, though, so Marianne slowly strangled to death rather than having her neck broken. Some people think the rope was intentionally short given how heinous her crimes were. Only two of her children survived, George, who had been saved by his smart father James, and Margaret Edith, who was born in jail. It's unclear how many people Marianne killed, but people think it's up to 21. I feel like given today's society of where people have a lot more transparency into each other's relationships, if they would have been able to catch her after, let's say, the first or even second marriage, because nowadays you would raise a lot of eyebrows where all of your family members just suddenly die within a few days up to a week of the exact same circumstances and same symptoms. So I don't know if that would have been something possible given like it was in the 1800s. Yeah, I think it was a lot easier back then for people like Marianne to move from place to place to place, and there really was no easy trail, right? Unless it was people talking between these little towns in like northern England, probably people wouldn't have figured it out, and they didn't for years. And the fact that someone's dying of like gastric fever or something that they think is cholera, I think people died of that shit all the time. And so the fact that this one person in this one town died of it, or maybe a few of them in the same family, they probably just thought it was cholera or whatever gastric fever actually was. Well, the thing on my mind is that everybody around her had it, but she never once had it herself. So it's kind of like, why is everybody that you're in contact with dying of the same thing but you're never documented as having that illness yourself because ostensibly it's contagious. Yeah, but it's possible that she told them that she had it and recovered. Let's switch gears real quick and talk about what arsenic really is and why it's toxic to people and animals in the environment. Arsenic in its naturally occurring form will typically be bound to some other sort of mineral or element such as oxygen or metals like iron and nickel and cobalt. So pure arsenic, to my knowledge, doesn't occur in nature very often, but it is a relatively uncommon mineral that you find throughout the crust. So within the soil, within water, sometimes even within the air itself, but really it's mostly going to be localized in the soil. Now, speaking of pure elemental arsenic, that is highly toxic, along with inorganic compounds of arsenic as well. So things that bind to oxygen, sulfates, salts, those are very toxic. In comparison, Organic compounds of arsenic that can form in like seaweed and within fish, for example, those are much, much less toxic to humans. So we don't have to worry about being poisoned by organic forms of arsenic. Now, I am really horrifically bad at chemistry. I In college, there was a 10-question true-false quiz, and I shit you not, on a true-false thing, I got a 10% correct. I could have done all trues or all falses and done five times better. I'm really fucking bad at chemistry. 
Can you explain just for me and other people who may not understand chemistry real quick what it means to be inorganic versus organic? Because I know organic is okay, like you said, fish seaweed, and the inorganic is bad, but what does it actually mean for something to be inorganic versus organic? In very simple terms, an organic compound is one that contains carbon or some kind of carbon atom somewhere within its structure. And an inorganic one is simply one that does not have carbon inside of it. So when I'm talking about inorganic compounds of arsenic, like arsenic salts, arsenic oxides, they don't have any carbon inside. And they are typically very reactive in the human body. I'm not saying that inorganic compounds in general are reactive, just the ones that are pertaining to arsenic. They're very bad for anything that happens inside the human body. So you're saying that the particular thing that the arsenic is a compound with makes it more or less stable. And for the arsenic compounds, the organic ones are just in a stable form that's less likely to react with a human body. Yes, that's correct. Just for our discussion on arsenic right now, I'm not saying that inorganic versus organic compounds are more or less reactive. For example, people who work in construction or in finishing You've heard of volatile organic compounds. Those are really bad for the human body as well, and they're completely organic. So don't take away from this conversation that, oh, because something's inorganic, it's bad or it's good. As a broad generalization, all inorganic forms of an arsenic compound are going to be super, super highly toxic. So we're talking about when arsenic binds to oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, fluorine. Those will be very toxic, and you don't want to be anywhere near those especially because some forms can be vaporized. You can literally breathe it in and it'll fuck you up from the lungs inside out. So if there is not a carbon molecule somewhere in an arsenic compound, stay away from it. Now, because these inorganic arsenic compounds are highly soluble, which means they can mix with water or some kind of liquid and become an acidic compound, they can also be applied to a lot of different industries. So things like wood treatment, cosmetics even, pigments, There's a lot of ways that arsenic can be taken from a solid and applied to a bunch of different surfaces or use cases. Like Finn said, there's a lot of ways arsenic can fuck you up. When arsenic is ingested as a poison, it's absorbed by the small intestine, and if the dose is large enough, it can kill you in as little as 24 hours. Because there wasn't a good test for arsenic until 1836, which we'll talk about later, it's likely that arsenic poisoning could have been misdiagnosed as food poisoning or cholera. A large dosage of arsenic will cause nausea, vomiting, cramping, diarrhea, shock, and death. Apparently, it only takes about a pea-sized amount of arsenic to kill an adult human. A smaller dosage of arsenic given over time can also prove to be fatal and causes confusion, increasing weakness, and ultimately paralysis and death. If you're exposed to inorganic arsenic over time, you're at risk for cancer and skin lesions. You can be exposed to inorganic arsenic from groundwater that naturally has arsenic in it, or from eating crops that are exposed to arsenic. Certain countries have much higher levels of arsenic in the groundwater supply. According to the WHO, those countries are Argentina, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Chile, China, India, Mexico, Pakistan, the United States, and Vietnam. And acute exposure to inorganic arsenic is very close to the symptoms of getting poisoned intentionally. You'll get the same nausea, vomiting, cramps, abdominal pain, diarrhea, After that fun, though, you'll get weird tingling in your extremities, numbness, and extreme muscle cramps before you possibly die. If you've been exposed to high levels of arsenic for at least five years, you may start experiencing pigmentation changes in your skin, weird lesions on your skin, 
and hardening of the skin on the palms of your hands and the bottoms of your feet. You're at risk for skin cancer, lung cancer, bladder cancer, diabetes, and heart attacks, and also kidney failure if you're young enough. It's especially dangerous for fetuses and small children. It can cause issues with fetal development and low birth weight and cognitive development issues in addition to all of the cancers and issues that adults can get as well. And this is one really important point. We did not give our daughter rice as her first food because you're going to find a lot of arsenic and stuff like rice, sweet potatoes, carrots, basically anything that comes out of the earth. And rice itself is very, very, it's strange in that it absorbs a lot more arsenic than any other produce. So in particular, we avoided rice as her first food and went with oatmeal instead, even though arsenic's going to be in basically everything that comes out of the earth. Rice just has huge concentrations of it. Exposure to arsenic in drinking water is a huge problem worldwide. The WHO estimates that 140 million people are exposed to arsenic in drinking water across 70 different countries. Throughout history, arsenic was used by the rich and the powerful to stay powerful and also to stay alive themselves. For example, the Borgias were a crazy powerful family in Italy during the Renaissance, and it included two popes if you guys want like basic scale on how important these people were in society. Anyway, to stay in power, the Borgias strategically killed a whole bunch of other powerful people as needed, especially bishops and cardinals. Their weapon of choice was poison, because a well-timed but subtle poison wouldn't point directly at the Borgias as the culprit, even if the victim was literally poisoned while dining with the Borgias. They primarily relied on arsenic to create their signature poison, called Cantarella, which was a specific variation of a standard arsenic poison. They were reportedly so good at poison dosages using their signature mix that they could time when a person would get sick and die, which is pretty fucking skillful in a terrible way. So there's a lot of rich and famous and powerful people using arsenic to get their way, and it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that it became available to the masses. White arsenic, also known as arsenic trioxide, was a waste product created during the purification of copper, iron, and tin during the Industrial Revolution. The metal ore was heated, and arsenic gas would be emitted and then condensed as white arsenic in the chimneys. They harvested this and sold it as rat poison for extra profit. And so the availability of this rat poison made it even more available for regular people. Arsenic had a lot of other uses back then, too. It was used as dyes in the Victorian era. Arsenic was combined with other elements to produce like bright colors, especially green. And it was used pretty ubiquitously as a dye. It was in clothes, toys, wallpaper, you name it. Wallpaper was especially bad, though, because certain molds could cause the arsenic to off-gas, so you'd be literally breathing in arsenic just being around it. It was also used in cosmetics because it killed bacteria and improved your complexion, even though it would ultimately build up in your body and maybe even kill you. Back then, like in our other story, obviously it was also used for murder, but it's impossible to say how many people were intentionally killed by arsenic. Because, like I said earlier, there was no way to detect arsenic in someone's body until 1836, and that test wasn't used in a criminal trial until 1840 in France. However, after the invention of that test, it was shortly after decided that arsenic accounted for a third of all poisoning deaths, intentionally or unintentionally. Because poisoning, and particularly poisoning with arsenic, was considered to be a murder tool used by women, in the 1800s they actually tried to outlaw the sale of arsenic to women. It didn't pass because, you know, rats. Everybody has to deal with rats and makeup and all the applications. In fact, you weren't even required to provide a name or anything until 1851 when you were buying arsenic. 
1851, they began requiring ledgers, where you basically like write your name and your address down when you bought it. But I don't think that actually made a difference because you could just write down like a bullshit name and a bullshit address, and it's the 1800s, nobody's going to know. So arsenic poisoning used to be super popular as a murder tool. And I looked into it, and nowadays it turns out you're not likely to be poisoned at all if you're being murdered. Poison accounts for less than 0.5% of all murders. And if you're unlucky enough to be murdered by poison, chances are that you're being poisoned with a medication and not arsenic specifically. I find this a little confusing though because technically arsenic trioxide is a medication now. It's used to treat leukemia. So I'm not sure if that would show up under that category. I wonder if for people who are suspected victims of a murder by poisoning, if arsenic is still one of the things they test against. Yeah, I believe it is one. If someone is a a coroner or anything like that and we're wrong, let us know. But I know that in order for it to be determined that arsenic was the cause of death, they have to have tested for the arsenic. They have to have ruled out any other causes for the arsenic. And the symptoms, if they were aware of them beforehand, had to have matched like a standard arsenic case. So if you've died of something, like you had a heart attack or something, and it's clear that it's because of an obstruction in your heart, Even if you had arsenic in your system, they may not rule it as homicide by arsenic, if that makes any sense. You have to have all three of the categories. Regardless of how rare it may be, modern murder by arsenic poisoning does happen. I couldn't find any sources that broke down poisoning statistics by individual poison, but I did find a handful of recent cases. One of those is a 2007 case in which a woman poisoned her husband, who is a Marine, with arsenic to get $250,000 in veterans' benefits. Apparently, she used a decent chunk of that money to then get breast implants, which is classy and also unsurprising from someone who tried to get away with arsenic murder in this century. Do you know how they were able to identify that she was actually the murderer in that case? You know, I don't, apart from the fact that it was her husband, and I'm sure they found some traces on her or in the house or something like that. And the fact that she had the motive, she was specifically going after the money, and then she was like, Shortly after her husband died, she was filmed on vacation. Like, like it was, it was like the classic, like forensic files kind of thing, where like it wasn't a life insurance policy; it was these benefits. But the same thing, where like, oh, the spouse is dead, now I'm gonna go party. So I think that's kind of like where they started drawing the motive from. Yeah, the reason why I ask is it sounds a lot like the very first case in England, where this woman just goes through like three, four, five husbands or whatnot, and nobody ever called anything about that. Whereas this one. This lady did a one and done and she was still caught. So I just want to point out that there's a big shift in how people treat poison victims now as opposed to how it was 200 years ago. A bigger modern day arsenic case happened on July 5th, 1998 at a summer festival in the small town of Wakayama, Japan. It would become known as the Wakayama Arsenic Poisoning Incident. Some of the women in the town, including insurance salesperson Masumi Hayashi, were boiling two big pots of curry in someone's garage for a few hours from like 12 to 3 p.m. The big pots of curry were then taken to the festival for people to eat. One of the two pots of curry was poisoned with enough arsenic trioxide to kill 100 people. Four people, including two kids and two adults who ate the curry, died from arsenic poisoning, and another 63 were gravely sickened. Masumi Hayashi was determined to be the culprit because one, her husband was an exterminator, who used arsenic trioxide and so she had access to it. Two, the arsenic trioxide was found on a paper cup at the garage where it was made. And three, she had arsenic trioxide in high concentration on one of her hair samples that they collected. Apparently, she and her husband were also running some insurance scams, and she'd also previously tried to murder him. Her motive was said to have been anger at her neighbors for shunning her, 
But honestly, that seems like a reasonable thing for them to have done because she's clearly like a psychotic person. When I was doing some research about how it affects people and animals, I saw that basically in the past hundred years, arsenic trioxide was a big component inside of insecticides, pesticides, rat poisons. But I didn't know if it was still largely used today in that capacity. So do you know if that's still like a big active component for those uses? It can be. And if it does, the label on the rat poison should say danger specifically. But arsenic and other heavy metal rat poisons, like even thallium is one of them, they're just so fucking dangerous, they fall out of favor. So you can still buy them, but most ones that you buy now are going to be anticoagulants. And so the label on that's just going to be like caution instead of danger. And one small side note on rat poisons, they're actually called rodenticides because they target rodents of all kinds. And some of them were designed to kill after one exposure, so like one big megadose of poison. And some are designed to kill the rodent after a few exposures to the poison. And one weird thing, part of why it has to be like one or the other, is that rats can't vomit at all. It's kind of like horses. And so they're super cautious about eating large quantities of novel food. So it either has to be like highly potent or it has to make them just a little bit sick over time until it finally kills them so they don't get like a taste aversion to the poison itself. Apparently, the arsenic that's used as a poison to, you know, kill people, it is both tasteless and odorless. So it's a particularly good candidate to try to kill somebody discreetly. The mixture that the Borgias used, which was called Cantarella, it was actually sweet to the taste. So you could almost mask it as like a kind of sugar. It's a white powder, hence being called white arsenic, as opposed to things like black, yellow, or gray arsenic, which is more pure arsenic. I grew up reading Agatha Christie novels, watching like Arsenic and Old Lace and all that stuff. So when I first started researching this, I thought that I was going to be an expert already. But I did the dumbest thing. I kept thinking that arsenic tasted like almond, but I was 100% mixing that up with cyanide, which we're going to do in the future. So remember, arsenic, tasteless, odorless, don't be dumb like me. Cyanide is the one that tastes like almonds. Let's talk about how we avoid being exposed to arsenic in the first place. So the number one way that we think about it as being delivered to the human body is through food, right? Food and water. So you want to avoid foods that are high in inorganic arsenic, something like rice, especially if you've got kids, because remember, the same dosage that would be moderately dangerous to adults is sometimes fatal in kids. Rice is unique in its ability to absorb high amounts of arsenic from the earth and the water, and then you get to absorb it when you eat it yourself. Washing your rice only helps reduce the amount of arsenic inside of it a little bit, but a specific rice cooking method can reduce the arsenic by up to 50%, which is still relatively high, but it's still good if you need to have rice in your diet. And like Finn was saying, it's not that the rice itself is going to kill you if you're like a regular adult who eats rice from time to time or even a kid who eats rice from time to time. The issue is going to be, especially when you're like an infant and you're eating a lot of rice at like the very, very young age and it's going to accumulate in that very small body. The FDA did a study recently where they looked at several different brands of baby foods and across the board, I don't know if they found any, the levels of arsenic in the rice in particular was way above what was safe. And it was true in a few other things like the sweet potatoes and basically like all the root vegetables. It was still bad, but in the rice in particular, it wasn't great. And just remember, that's going to build up and build up. Scientifically, the best way to cook your rice to reduce the amount of arsenic by 50%, like Finn said, but also to retain the nutrients in it is called the parboil with absorption method, where basically you boil your rice in a lot of water, at least four cups of water for every one cup of rice for five minutes. Then you drain off the nasty arsenic water 
Then you add more water back to your rice, this time two cups for every cup of rice. And then you just cook it on low until basically all the water's gone. But for me, that's a lot of work. Um, so I just boil our rice in a non-scientific vat of water and then drain and rinse it afterwards. So basically, I'm cooking in a really big pot of water like pasta, no rice cookers or anything like that. With regards to different types of rice, white rice actually has less arsenic in it than brown rice because the arsenic actually concentrates in the husk that the brown rice has, but the white doesn't. So if you're shopping around, maybe this is something that you can consider when you're trying to feed your family. And make sure you try to check your rice's origin as well, if you can. You're better off buying basmati rice from India, for example, rather than from the U.S. India's got lower levels of arsenic in their environment, such as their soil or water, than the U.S., and thus less arsenic ends up in Indian rice. Even in the U.S., though, I saw that Californian rice has less arsenic than rice that may be found somewhere else, like the Mississippi area, other places in America. So if you have to shop domestically, Californian rice has a pretty good reputation. So that's how you deal with arsenic in food. Either avoid it entirely or change up your cooking method. Now, with regards to water, your local community water provider should publish the arsenic levels in your public drinking water. At least within the U.S., the EPA has standards for arsenic, which is no more than 10 micrograms per liter. But it also states that there's no safe level of arsenic within drinking water, so you should aim for about 0 micrograms per liter if possible. Now, what I just said is more applicable to a centralized water provider, something like a municipal supply system that feeds water to your hose or your tap. This is different if you're on well water. You want to get it tested when it's drilled and then six months later to be safe entirely. You may need to continually test for arsenic if you get an iffy score the first or second time. Now, some places don't require arsenic testing if it's a pre-existing well, so don't assume that if you buy a property that already has a well, that it's safe for arsenic if you haven't treated it yourself. Generally speaking, arsenic is used to treat wood, so if you're buying lumber to build like houses and construction, that kind of thing, that treated wood is going to have some form of arsenic inside of it. So you'll need to seal it with some kind of sealer and uh, do that before you build your deck or outdoor furniture every couple of years to prevent exposure to it. Because that sealant or that finish is going to wear off over time due to weathering, that kind of thing. So just to make sure that if you use treated wood in a way that it's going to be exposed to human touch, do some periodic maintenance checks to see what the condition of the finish over that wood is. If you do happen to come into contact with raw treated wood, just make sure you wash your hands because it'll come off with soap and water. And that goes triply so for kids because remember, the same dosage for a child or an infant is going to be much more likely to be fatal than it is for an adult. Also, one last note about wood. Make sure you don't burn treated wood because unless you want to inhale arsenic as well as a lot of other nasty shit that goes into treating wood, just don't burn it because it'll release all those bad chemicals into the air. It has also been definitively proven through a wide variety of scientific studies that people who work in copper and copper alloying, such as bronze and brass in those industrial settings, you're much, much more likely to be exposed through occupational hazards to things like breathing in arsenic compounds and being exposed to topical arsenic compounds. So if you're working in those industries, try to do the best you can if it's not mandated as part of what you do day to day to prevent getting exposed to that. Obviously, if it's airborne, try to get something that is like a personal protective gear to prevent breathing it in. But it's also a thing in glass blowing as well. So even though it doesn't directly involve metal, 
glass blowers, I think, are exposed to arsenic in smaller amounts as well. If you've been exposed to arsenic, you're not necessarily completely doomed. If you've been poisoned with arsenic or had some kind of environmental exposure, you are shockingly maybe in luck if you're treated fast enough. You can be given a medication called dimercaprol, which will absorb the arsenic and prevent it from making you sick. And medications like this bind to heavy metals like arsenic, gold, lead, and that one in particular was created during World War II as an antidote to lewisite, which was a chemical warfare compound based on arsenic. Dimercaprol is one of a handful of medicines that are used to treat acute inorganic arsenic poisoning. Another one is succimer, and it's used to treat things like lead and mercury poisoning as well, so not just arsenic. Another one that is pretty complicated to say, so it's usually abbreviated as DMPS, is also one that's used to treat early exposure. So the key here is that if you are aware that you have been poisoned or been exposed to a high amount of arsenic really quickly, then there are solutions. They're not always going to save you if it's like a fatal, like a super fatal amount, but there are solutions to it. Now, the key to what Finn was saying is that you have to get treatment early, like as soon as possible, because almost all of these medications are going to work by binding to the arsenic so that it can't do damage to your body. All of the damage that's already been done to your body can't be undone by these medications. So you want to get in there early, like as soon as possible to prevent it from happening in the first place, because if you're already fucked up, it can't unfuck it. Now, unfortunately, there isn't too much you can do if you've been chronically exposed, either through environmental or occupational exposure, or even through intentional poisoning over a long term. The number one thing that I read that you could do is just try to treat dehydration. So just stay hydrated, drink water, that kind of thing. Otherwise, that damage has been done to you slowly throughout however many days, weeks, or even years at a time, and there's no clear solution. So if you can just hold on while obviously removing those incoming sources of contamination or exposure, then do that. But there's no reversal of the damage that's been done, unfortunately. But we are not doctors, so if you believe you've been exposed to arsenic at all of any kind, go see a doctor and there might be something they can do. Now that we've got a really good background about arsenic poisoning, as in how it comes about, what you can do to prevent it, and how to treat it. Let's see how it's actually depicted within the media, such as within film and TV shows. So the number one thing that we've seen so far is in the old film, Arsenic and Old Lace. Now, I didn't grow up with this, but I know you did. So would you care to give a quick synopsis and see how that's depicted in that particular piece of media? Yeah, Arsenic and Old Lace is one of my favorites. We were watching this downstairs, and we didn't get all the way through the rewatch because we have a three-year-old and it was difficult. But Basically, Arsenic and Old Lace is kind of like Angels of Death. It's these two old ladies, they're sisters, and they are killing people who they perceive to be old, and they don't have any families or anything, and they think they're doing them a kindness, and it's it's a really dark comedy, and it's really good, and there's Cary Grant in it, and it's a great movie, but the thing that's interesting about it is that it was actually based on a real story, but in the real story, instead of it being a pair of sisters, there was only one murderer, a woman named Amy Archer Gilligan. She ran a boarding house in Connecticut for the elderly named Archer House, and she was arrested for five murders, but it's likely that she killed many more people. It's just hard to tell because it was like in the early 1900s, and they didn't really investigate elderly deaths back then. When I was thinking about other movies that involved arsenic or poisoning in general, I thought about Princess Bride, which is like that really iconic scene with the Iocane powder, um, where it's like, the Dread Pirate Roberts is sitting across from Vicini and they're doing like a battle of the minds kind of thing where it's like they have two cups in front of them 
which one has the poison in it, they each have to drink one. So the whole point of that was, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Princess Bride, go see it if you have not. Uh, so skip ahead like 60 seconds. But the whole point was that Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts, had built up an immunity to the Iocane, so it didn't matter which one of the cups he drank out of. And I looked it up, and the practice of building up your immunity to poison, including arsenic, is a real thing. It's actually called Mithridatism, and it's named after Mithridates VI, who was the king of Pontus. And just a little bit of background and a little bit of a tangent on this, because it's fascinating. Pontus was technically a Hellenistic kingdom, but it had Greek, Persian, and Anatolian cultural roots. It existed as an independent kingdom in what's now northern Turkey from 281 to 63 BC, at which point it was defeated by Rome. So at that point, Rome took the western half entirely. The eastern half got kind of like stuck around as a client kingdom of Rome, which I guess means it was semi-independent, but still under Roman power. Our guy Mithridates presided over several wars that we aren't going to go into, and some of them temporarily expanded the borders of Pontus, but ultimately it led to its downfall at the hands of Rome. But this guy was convinced that during all of this, somebody was going to try to poison him, so he slowly built up his immunity to arsenic by taking it in very small doses. And apparently even at, like, feast, he would sprinkle poison on his food to, like, impress his guest that he, like, wouldn't be killed by it. And he wasn't just satisfied with building up his immunity to arsenic, so he experimented on slaves and criminals to figure out non-lethal doses of various poisons that he could use to build up his own immunity. He ended up with something called Mithridatium, which helped him build up immunity to poisons using 36 different ingredients, one of which included lizard flesh. And for the record, you should not do this. It's full-on crazy town. You'll just poison yourself. Don't be like a paranoid king from antiquity. It's not going to work for you. This guy probably killed lots of slaves and criminals trying to figure this out. The last one I wanted to talk about is The Borgias, the TV show, which I think has Jeremy Irons. It's been a while. But do you remember, we watched it in college, it's been a long, long time. Do you remember if they actually featured any poisonings in the show? It's been a while since we've seen it, but I know that poison was a very, very prominent theme. So the first episode literally has a poisoning take place or an attempted poisoning take place. And even the Cantarella poison, the specific Borgia one, was a centerpiece for one of the later episodes. So it definitely plays a really key part as part of the political machinations of the entire theme of the show. So if you're interested in a very stylized, dramatized way of seeing how people were poisoned back in the Middle Ages, or really the Renaissance, I should say, check out the Borgias, the Showtime one, not the other show that's just called Borgia that has a completely different cast. I've heard it's still as good as the one that's on Showtime, but we haven't seen that one. I really, really fond memories of watching the Borgias. I do think that it kind of dipped in quality towards the end, but I still highly recommend it. We should do a rewatch of it sometime. And I think we're almost out of things to say about arsenic this week, but I do have one last super tiny fun tidbit. Kind of like how you can put arsenic on wood to prevent it from decomposing, arsenic also slows down decomposition in bodies. And some people think this might be part of the origin of the vampire myth. If you like unearth somebody and they look like they're still fresh, if they've been like using arsenic to like take it as medicine or like for their complexion or whatever, it's possible that they thought they weren't decomposing because they weren't because they were taking arsenic. So just to wrap everything up, everything we've been talking about in this episode as far as poisonous arsenic goes is either the elemental form, the pure form, like the one you see on the periodic table, or the inorganic compounds, the ones that interact with metal, oxides, sulfates, that kind of thing. There are, like we mentioned, organic arsenic compounds that are largely harmless to people. So when you're talking about 
arsenic in like apple juice, rice, other forms of food, even water. There are organic arsenic compounds that may or may not harm you, but that's not the focus of this episode. So don't just read it as all arsenic is bad. Most arsenic that you read about is bad, but a lot of forms are not bad. However, remember that the EPA says that there is no safe amount of inorganic arsenic in human drinking water. Don't forget that we have a website, inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. We've got listings of the episodes there, we've got links to cool books about disasters and true crime, and we've even got free stickers. You can also reach us at inthelabyrinthofdeath on Instagram. Follow us and leave us a review if you get a chance, and tell your friends. Tune in next week for yet another new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, share with us your near misses with death or poisoning with inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com. We'll see y'all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals.